Good evening. This is Rob McClure with Vicki Iden coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Almost half of the jobs that were lost during the pandemic came from Wisconsin's hospitality industry. Since March 2020, the state has lost about 114,000 jobs, and 44% of those came from the hospitality field. That's according to a new report from COWS, COWS, a policy institute based out of Madison. The Associated Press is reporting that about half of the funds being spent on a Republican-led investigation into the November election will go towards data analysis. Specifically, $325,000 will be spent to analyze the state's voting machines. The full investigation will cost Wisconsin taxpayers nearly $680,000. No matter how much money is spent, the investigation likely won't find anything since it's based largely on the misinformation spread by former President Donald Trump. The investigation is being led by former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, who will be paid $55,000 for a contract that runs through December. The state of Wisconsin has dropped plans to impose regulations on a startup that allows people to rent their private pools by the hour. According to the Associated Press, state regulators told the tech company Swimply that pools rented through their app would be required to meet the same requirements as public swimming pools. Last week, the state's Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection dropped that regulatory effort after Swimply threatened to take the department to court. According to the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, which represented Swimply, Wisconsin is the only state that has attempted to challenge the company. The Madison Metropolitan School District will be requiring masks outdoors for elementary and middle school students. The new policy also applies to staff. The mandate expands on Dane County's existing mask policy, which requires masks indoors. The announcement comes the day before Madison students begin returning to class. In related news, the CAP Times reports that the MMSD is seeing unexpected demand for its virtual school option for elementary students. The virtual school was announced late last week and roughly 750 families have applied for the program. The application window for it has closed as of Monday. The district originally planned for about 150 students to enroll in the program, but said it would be open to expanding the program based on demand. Wisconsin's public health officials are warning residents to mask up, vax up, and keep their distance heading into the holiday weekend. The warning comes as the Delta variant continues to surge across the state. Wisconsin's seven-day average for new COVID cases currently stands at nearly 1,700 cases per day. That's the highest average since mid-January. And those are the headlines for this evening. On to the rest of the day's news. At its meeting yesterday, Madison's Common Council voted unanimously to push ahead with plans to move Capitol High School into a new location in Regent Street. The project was already approved by the city's plan commission, but a coalition of 12 Regent neighborhood residents filed a petition challenging that decision. For more details, we turn to our producer, Jonah Chester. Capitol High School currently operates out of three different facilities scattered across Madison. The Alternative School, which is a part of the Madison Metropolitan School District, caters to roughly 200 students. 
In July, Madison's plan commission gave approval to Capitol High to consolidate, giving them permission to move to the Hoyt School on Regent Street. According to the Capitol Times, the Hoyt School currently houses some Madison school and community recreation staff. The move, which includes some minor additions to the building, would unify Capitol High under a single roof. That plan commission decision was challenged by a coalition of 12 Regent neighborhood residents. By last night's Common Council meeting, that number had swelled to about 60 people. Those against the new school cite concerns over increased traffic on the residential street, the availability of parking, and Hoyt's proximity to nearby West High School, which is about a half a mile away. Several people who spoke at yesterday's meeting said they supported Capitol High and its mission, just not in its new location in the Regent neighborhood. Angela Madelon, a Regent neighborhood resident, also raised concerns over Capitol High's plans to expand enrollment in the coming years. The school is planning to bring its enrollment up from 200 students to 300 over the next decade. Obviously, we want this to succeed, and success likely will mean more students, presumably not fewer. And there's little discussion of that and of the building capacity, not to mention more street parking and traffic stress. Alders and MMSD staff say that there were numerous opportunities for the neighbors to raise those concerns earlier on in the process. $6 million for the project was included in the MMSD funding referendum approved by voters last November. During the planning process for that referendum, Madison School Board member Christina Gomez-Schmidt says local leaders engaged in several outreach efforts. During the referendum process in 2020, the district worked with city alders and um, the community to, uh, to do outreach to neighborhood residents to address questions about the relocation of Capitol High School, including transportation, water mitigation issues, and access to the building for community programs. I feel that the district has addressed many of the concerns expressed tonight. Alder Regina Vitiver, who represents the Regent neighborhood, says there were three public forums for neighbors to express their concerns. In fact, many of the things that came from the public have been incorporated into the new designs for the school. For example, it was identified by the residents surrounding the area that there was a, a runoff problem on the parking lot. And that's part of the plan is to mitigate that with the new construction and therefore make the lives of the residents around the school better. There was also a public hearing session at the July 12th meeting of the Plan Commission. The new school is also endorsed by the Regent Neighborhood Association, which voted at its meeting last week to support the project. Alders voted unanimously to dismiss the neighbor's petition to stop the project. Capitol High is tentatively set to move into the new space by next August. Also at yesterday's meeting, the Common Council voted to declare a state of emergency at Rindall Park. The park is currently the site of an encampment of unhoused folks who have been permitted to stay at Rindall while city leaders establish an alternative campsite. As part of the state of emergency resolution, the city is eyeing two properties to relocate the residents to. A city-owned property on the 3,000 block of Derry Drive on the southeast side and an undetermined second site. Per the resolution, the Dairy Drive location can receive around 30 people, and the second unknown site should also be capable of receiving about 30 people. The Capital Times reports that about 70 folks are currently living at Rindall. There is currently no final eviction date for campers at Rindall Park. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Wildlife conservation groups critical of Wisconsin's handling of wolf hunts have now taken legal action against the state. 
They hope to set aside a state law that requires a wolf hunt each year if the animal isn't under federal protection. For more, we turn to Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Animal protection groups hope to overturn Wisconsin's controversial law allowing wolf hunts. A newly filed lawsuit follows months of criticism of key decisions about the program and its effect on the gray wolf population. A handful of groups argue the state law is unconstitutional because it limits the impact of population estimates. After the gray wolf was delisted from the Federal Endangered Species Act, hunters far exceeded a quota in a special hunt in February. And there's concern the established quota of 300 for a wolf hunt this November is too high. Melissa Smith with the group Friends of the Wisconsin Wolf and Wildlife says it's proof the state statute is aggressive. Wolves don't know state borders. They don't know if they're in Michigan or in Minnesota or in Illinois. But if they cross in here, they're in a really deadly place. She notes many other states aren't scheduling wolf hunts even with federal protections removed. The Department of Natural Resources named in the suit declined to comment on the case. Agency biologists recommended a smaller quota this fall, but the Natural Resources Board still approved a higher total. Wisconsin law requires an annual hunt when federal wolf protections aren't in place. Plaintiffs say the Resources Board ignored the science. They also called attention to a panel member still being allowed to cast votes even though their term expired in May. Michelle Lute of the group Project Coyote says the current system in Wisconsin is broken. There are problems with DNR's population modeling. The February hunt interrupted their winter count of the population. And by the DNR's own admission, the level of uncertainty in their understanding means we must proceed cautiously. Conservation groups contend the wolf population is still too fragile to resume activity. And Smith says they've exhausted other avenues available to the public to pause the hunts but we're eventually left with no other option. We deserve a voice, and this is the best way we could find to have that voice. In addition to some big game hunters backing the program, farmers have argued that wolves prey on their livestock. The state-level lawsuit is not connected to national efforts to reinstate federal protections. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Time is now 6.16 and 40 seconds, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new report from the Prison Policy Initiative, a criminal justice think tank, has given Wisconsin an F for its response to COVID-19 in prisons. The report compares how different states have handled COVID-19 amongst those who are incarcerated. The 11,000 incarcerated Wisconsinites have tested positive for COVID since last March. That's more than half of the state's incarcerated population. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Wanda Bertram and Emily Widra. Bertram is the policy Prison Policy Initiative's communications strategist, and Widra is its COVID-19 research lead. So just in brief here, how does Wisconsin stack up compared to other states in our response to COVID in prisons? So we, we did this report, you know, in part because 
it's been so difficult during the COVID-19 pandemic to keep track of how various states are responding to the crisis in prisons with COVID-19, you know, having such a such a higher case rate, claiming so many more uh, lives per capita in prison than in the general public. What we found in, you know, gathering data on all 50 states was that Wisconsin is more or less in the middle of the pack, right? It had the 16th largest population reduction in prisons, which we thought was very good. Its death rate is the 16th lowest in the country. It's, uh, you know, in the middle of the pack when it comes to, you know, vaccination rates. So, Overall, it got an F. <laughs> and if that's surprising to anybody who's listening, I, I want to clarify, you can be the best out of any U.S. state in your response to COVID-19 in prisons and still be doing a really bad job. And that's what we really found. You know, every state is more or less doing badly because when we look at, you know, things like the populations of prisons right now and, you know, the amount that prisons are actually putting effort into get people uh, the vaccine, who want to take it and get people released who are safe to go home. Really, there's not a lot that's being done. Now, let's dive a little bit deeper here into the four metrics you use to compare different states. Can you walk me through each of those? Emily, do you want to go into some detail on that? Absolutely. Yeah. So overall, we were looking at sort of four main criteria, and each of those definitely had, you know, subcategories to them. But the first category we looked at was about population reduction. So that's really about reducing the number of people that are locked up behind bars. So that we measured in two different ways. The first way was we looked at the um, prison population in March 2020, and then we looked at it as recently as we could get it when we were collecting data. So that was about the end of May 2021. Um, And we looked at how much percent change there was in the population. And then that was like one measure. And then the second measure of that population reduction was about policies that states implemented to get people out of prison and to slow down admissions into prison. So what that looked like was states that um, suspended incarceration for technical violations of probation and parole, so things that are technically not crimes, um, so suspending incarceration for those things, increasing the use of expedited or accelerated release, Uh, medical and compassionate release, and uh, finally, uh, each state defines violent offenses or minor offenses differently, but we awarded points to states that had any policies implemented to release people sort of en masse for minor offenses or nonviolent offenses. Um, So that was the first category about population reduction. Then we also looked at the infection and death rates behind bars. So we calculated those rates for each state and we compared them to Um, the prison systems in each state. And what we found pretty much across the board there is that most prison systems had higher rates of both COVID infections and deaths behind bars uh, than the state surrounding them. And then we looked at vaccination rates. So that was both what percent of the population has received at least one dose of the vaccine um, and also where the state prioritized incarcerated populations on their like vaccine rollout plans that we were seeing at the beginning of the year. And so that was either, you know, they were highly prioritized, either in that first category, um, you know, in the middle of the road in that like second or third category that a lot of states had or basically ignored and not included in that plan. And then the last category we measured on was about uh, policy changes to address basic health and mental health needs. So that's things like providing masks, providing hygiene products for free, free phone calls, free video calls, um, those kinds of easy, low-hanging fruit policies that states should have implemented to kind of you know, take care of the people in their custody during what's essentially a crisis behind bars. 
So those are the four main categories that we measured. Now, I know just a minute ago, Wanda mentioned that Wisconsin fell sort of towards the middle of the pack in terms of its uh, response to COVID in prisons, the middle of the pack being used generously here. We still failed. But in terms of those four particular focus areas, did Wisconsin particularly stand out in any of those fields, either in, in a positive light or a negative one? Personally, I mean, I, I'd like to point to something uh, about Wisconsin that stood out to us, which is that as of summer of 2021, Prisons in Wisconsin are operating at over 100% capacity, actually 113% capacity. So as Emily indicated a minute ago, we weighted most heavily the criteria about, you know, how much states had done to reduce their prison populations. Because when you have a crowded crowded venue of any kind, whether it's a nursing home, a, a concert, a wedding, anything like that, you're going to get very high incidence and quick spread of COVID-19. So you can see that Wisconsin is not doing enough to reduce its prison population. We, in particular, when we were looking for policies that states had implemented to to get people free, we didn't find that Wisconsin was doing anything to accelerate the release of people who were already close to their release date. We didn't find that they were expanding compassionate release or medical parole, which are policies that allow the prison system to release somebody who's basically at at imminent risk of death. Um, We didn't find any evidence that they were increasing releases of people who had committed the most minor offenses. So, you know, what we're talking about is Wisconsin leaving a lot of really key and, you know, obvious policy ideas on the cutting room floor. Was the response to COVID in prisons across America pretty stagnant throughout the pandemic, or did prison officials improve response efforts as the months passed? No, I think it's actually, you know, unfortunately, it's the opposite. There was a very, there, you know, there was a very brief blip of governors and other elected officials professing to care about the lives of people in prisons during the pandemic and the risk that they were at. So it was those first few months of the pandemic when you saw things like Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York, Governor Jay Inslee in Washington, making an effort to commute a certain number of sentences. But it was actually worse than states not really doing anything or having a stagnant response. What it was uh, in my view, was elected leaders basically doing the minimum that they had to do to make it appear as though they they cared, and then basically backing off and not really doing any more. So what we've seen over the last several months is that prison populations that you know uh, dropped a little bit in the first few months of the pandemic have been creeping back up. Jail populations that dropped a lot at the beginning of the pandemic have been creeping back up. In many places, prison and jail populations are higher now than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, it's it, this is a this is it's a terrible thing. I mean, I can't stress how bad this is for incarcerated people to be just forgotten and ignored like this. So, with all of that information in mind, tell me what does the situation look like as we go into the Delta surge? I, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I can't you know I can't comment in in a, in a lot of depth on that. Maybe Emily, you might have some more thoughts than I do, but I think that. You know, really, especially in places that have low vaccination rates, and I would point out that in Wisconsin, the vaccination rate is uh, less than 70%, you're going to see Delta spread a lot faster uh, in prisons than it's spreading outside of prisons. And you're going to be seeing a lot of cases, and just as we have throughout the entire pandemic, you're going to see in-prison medical units failing to help people actually stay alive and not really able to, to handle the challenge that they're being given. And Emily, is that... Is that what you'd say, too? Do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I I agree with that. And I would also say, you know, as you emphasized earlier, Wanda, I would say that that our 
our findings are not looking good for a surge of Delta in prisons because even in states where, you know, we're looking at really high vaccination rates, you know, much higher than the national average, we know that these people are packed in really tight and the populations haven't changed nearly enough. So regardless of if we're vaccinating people, we still have a public health crisis. I mean, as we've seen with Delta, there's breakthrough cases, you know, vaccine is not the end all be all. So with these populations still basically not dropping nearly as much as they needed to, we're still at risk regardless of, you know, the vaccine rate that we're seeing behind bars. So it's kind of like a, a one-two punch there. Really, the, the big takeaway that I hope people get from our report, you know, it's not even like, oh, you know, your state was terrible compared to a bunch of other states or, oh, thank God our state was better than, you know, Louisiana or whatever. You know, the big takeaway is there's still time to do what they should have been doing this entire time and implement some of these key policies, right? Expand parole, accelerate release people who are close to their release dates. If you believe, you know, it, you know, in particular, if you're a if you're a governor in a state and you have professed on the campaign trail that we have a problem with mass incarceration, that we need criminal justice reform, now is the time to make good on those values that you say that you have, right? Release people who are being uh, imprisoned for nonviolent drug offenses. If you have said no one should be in prison for nonviolent drug offenses, this is an ongoing crisis and, and we're still waiting for states to take some real action. Wanda, Emily, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about this report? Anything we haven't had a chance to touch on here today that you feel deserves airtime? Well, I, I mean, I do want to be realistic that, you know, we've, We've gotten a little bit of feedback from states so far saying, oh, no, like, you know, you counted us as not having a, a policy requiring testing or, you know, a pol- or, you know, we actually did, you know, expand releases for, you know, this segment of the population and you, you didn't count that. I want to put it out there that there's a lot of state policies that we assume were enacted, but just not shared with the public. And if we couldn't find any record of those, we didn't count them. And the reason that we didn't do that was partly because of expediency, just the expediency of trying to gather data on all 50 states. But it was also because it's important that states be transparent. You know, if you say that you have a policy, but you've never actually made that policy public, you don't really have to be accountable for the success or failure of that policy or whether it's actually made good on, right? So I just want to put that out there because I know that prison systems are going to come back and they're going to, you know, they're going to argue with certain ways that we scored But that's not, you know, that you can't really have your cake and eat it, too, when it comes to hiding a policy from the public and then coming out and saying, oh, you know, we should get the credit when an organization says you get an F. Emily, Wanda, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. I I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jonah. Yeah, thank you, Jonah. Wanda Bertram is a communications strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative, and Emily Widra is a COVID-19 research lead also with the Prison Policy Initiative. We'll have a link to their full report up on the web version of this post online at wortfm.org. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We get the week in local government news, the most comprehensive weather forecast on the air, and Madison in the 60s celebrates Labor Day. But first, we'll take a break and check back in with the BBC for headlines from around the world. Stay with us. (music) 
The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Do you know what the city council is up to this week? How about the Dane County Board? Each week, we turn to the Cap Times' Abigail Becker for what you need to know about what your local government is up to. Here's the latest from Becker on all that is local on this episode of Downtown Abbey. It is Wednesday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, how you doing this week? I'm doing pretty well, listening to the lovely birds outside on this gorgeous, um, almost officially fall day. It is truly a gorgeous, almost officially fall day. I love fall. It brings with it changing leaves, Halloween, spooky stuff, and my other favorite item every fall that the city of Madison goes through, the budgeting process. Uh, It's already budget time for the city of Madison as this week Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway introduced her 2022 executive capital budget proposal. Give me a rundown on what's in it. Yeah, so it's a $355.3 million proposal that reflects investments in housing, small business recovery, and sustainability, and also uses federal pandemic relief aid for ongoing needs in the city. So the capital budget funds large-scale projects and programs, while the operating budget, which will be coming in October, funds ongoing services. The capital improvement plan um, outlines financial plans for the city over the next five years. So that capital improvement plan, abbreviated CIP, invests $1.16 billion in 164 projects and programs between 2022 and 2027. Now, of the total capital budget proposal for 2022, $142 million relies on borrowing, and that would be repaid in the operating budget through property taxes. Now, last year, the mayor proposed a $166 million capital budget, so that is much lower than this year's proposal, and the difference in what she offered this year is largely due to federal funding in the budget that is allocated for the city's bus rapid transit project. While building the budget, Rhodes-Conway outlined key priorities of equity, sustainability, um, future planning, health and safety, fiscal consequences, and feasibility. She also noted that not every project could be funded. Total borrowing was reduced by $20 million in the capital improvement plan compared to what agencies requested. So she did have to um, pick and choose from what agencies asked for. Rhodes-Conway said the result is a budget that reflects the needs of our community and balances them with the resources available. The mayor said the ongoing response to the pandemic reinforced the importance of resilience and sustainability and that her budget reflects these priorities. So one of the city's ongoing challenges is housing. Uh, The proposal calls for increasing funding for affordable housing and home ownership assistance through nearly $20 million in consumer lending programs and $42 million to increase the supply of affordable housing. Now, both those numbers are more than what was in the 2021 capital improvement plan. So that long-term plan also looks ahead to redeveloping public housing, including Truax Apartments, Teresa Terrace, and the Triangle. And to support neighborhoods and businesses, Rose Conway proposes to add $500,000 annually to the Small Business Equity and Recovery Program, including the Commercial Building Ownership Program. Now, she announced her proposal um, earlier this week at Main Street Industries, which is on Main Street, it's in the title, um, which is a business incubator owned by Commonwealth Development. 
And she was accompanied by several business owners who received recovery funds from the city. Uh, so moving along here on priorities, on sustainability efforts, Rose Conway proposes investing $16.5 million to buy electric public works vehicles and buses and $2.25 million to convert all city-owned streetlights to LEDs. It also continues investing in renewable energy and energy efficiency facilities, um, also in the city's green power, solar training program, and watershed studies to target stormwater management investments. Rose Conway's budget would also establish a community sustainability grant program and for the first time extend services to the town of Madison, which will officially become part of the city next year. On transit, the mayor's budget includes um, a smaller amount at $120,000 to help plan for train service to Madison under the Amtrak Connect U.S. plan. The capital improvement plan also includes funding to reconstruct the university and Atwood Avenues and the John Nolan Drive bridges. $4 million is included in 2023 to plan for the north-south bus rapid transit line, and that's in addition to the east-west line that will be under construction somewhat soon here. Um, and also, she's made investments in safe streets initiatives like 20 is Plenty and Vision Zero to promote safer driving. The 2022 executive spending plan also allocates $9.75 million of the $47 million that Madison received through the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. These funds will be used for projects like converting a hotel to housing, uh, supporting youth-centered housing, and improving energy efficiency of affordable housing that already exists in the city. So I asked her sort of what it meant to have all of this, uh, you know, federal relief aid, you know, during the budgeting process, during her press conference, and the mayor said that receiving these funds and having them through the budgeting process has been transformational. So what comes next? Yeah, so the budget is a winding process, and we are just at the beginning. After the mayor introduces her budget proposals, the Finance Committee and City Council Alders have the opportunity to make changes to them in the form of budget amendments. So the Finance Committee plans to vote on changes to the executive capital budget on September 27th. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the mayor will introduce her 2022 operating budget, October 5th, and the Finance Committee will vote on uh, amendments to it um, on October 25th. And then amendments from city council members are planned to be announced November 5th, um, and that precedes budget deliberations beginning the week of November 9th. And keeping our eye on city government for a minute, at last night's city council meeting, Alders agreed on an alternative site for the encampment at Rindall Park and declared a state of emergency in said park. Now, what's the latest on that situation? Give us an update. Yeah, so the adopted resolution authorizes city staff to prepare a temporary campground at a site on the southeast side to meet state and local standards for campgrounds and to provide safer and more sanitary conditions for about 30 people. According to that resolution, calls for city services have increased at Rindell Park, where an encampment has been for quite some time now, while people um, have been camping there, and sanitary conditions have also worsened over the past several months. So the plan now is to use two locations for authorized encampments. Um, I will note one at Rindell is currently not an authorized camping site. Um, so the two locations are, you know, this 1.8 acre and city-owned lot at uh, 3202 Dairy Drive, and that's on the southeast side of the city. And then um, a second location at a privately owned property that the city is currently pursuing. Um, they did not disclose this address, but um, I will certainly be watching out for when um, for when that's announced. So no end date for the Rindell encampment was set. 
uh, despite Alder Gary Halverson, who represents the area, trying to include an end date in an amendment that didn't pass. Um, after Council President Sayed Abbas and Alder Jeanette Figueroa Cole amended the resolution asking for a safety plan to be approved by the City Council next month, a unanimous vote on the state of emergency and pursuing the Dairy Drive property was recorded. I will note that Alder Jael Curry, who represents the area where the Dairy Drive site is located, um, sponsored the state of emergency resolution and the plan to move ahead with Dairy Drive, along with Mayor Sati Rose Conway and five other alders. And she said Tuesday during the meeting that the city can't keep debating and striving for perfection. Um, you know, we've seen several offers on the table for a permanent men's shelter and, um, you know, discussions over what to do with the encampment at Rindle have been going on for a few months now. And, um, you know, a plan really needs to, to get in place here, especially as we come up on some colder, se- uh, the colder season in a couple months here. So a little more details on on the plan. So the city would use $2 million of previously budgeted federal pandemic relief aid to develop and operate the site. Um, So those plans include preparing the site to function as a campground, building or purchasing temporary shelter structures, so something more than just a tent, and then contracting with a local social service provider to provide on-site management and support. Uh, Community Development Division Director Jim O'Keefe said that the site a dairy drive is not meant to accommodate everyone currently camping at Rindall, and that the city has received some reasonable assurances that between 20 and 25 people would be willing to try out the dairy drive location. At the meeting, Brenda Koppel, who is the president of Occupy Madison, um, acknowledged the city's efforts to try to find a solution, but you know she worried that the dairy drive option could be, you know, what she said, a setup for disappointment. Congo also said that improvements like lights and running water could go a long way in making the current encampment at Rindall more safe. And by her estimate, there's about 67 people currently camping at Rindall. And she also, you know, mentioned that there was an outbreak of COVID-19 at the encampment and had said that, you know, if the if there was more attention paid to this, that maybe it could have been avoided. The City Council's decision on Tuesday now kickstarts the process of rezoning Dairy Drive for a campsite, and um, that was a use not previously allowed in the city. Earlier in the meeting, the council approved a zoning change that lays the legislative groundwork for people to sleep and live outside in something called mission camps, which would be a facility owned or operated or funded by a nonprofit, a religious group, or, you know, a government entity that provides a campground area where people can, you know, sleep and and live outside. O'Keefe said that the rezoning process could be complete by the end of November, but preparation of the site could begin earlier, and said that he believes the site could be ready for use by mid to late October. Um, Now, the second site, the one that is currently owned privately, will take longer because the city has to go through its real estate process to become the owner of the property. Um, But he said the city hopes to have that additional location ready yet this year. All right. I've been joined on the other end of the line by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, as always, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Great to be here, Jonah. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, August was certainly an active and challenging period for forecasters for a month which can be something of a dullard situated as it is before the dynamics of the seasonal shift really get into gear with the autumnal equinox. Wisconsin had no fewer than 11 tornadoes in August, and although 
In Madison, we were three degrees warmer than normal for the month. Rainfall was short by, uh, was short of the normal by almost an inch or roughly 23%, which was actually pretty unusual given the deluges that occurred just to the west, north, and south of the listening area during the last couple of weeks of the month. September is inaugurating on a much more quiescent note with uh, neither tornadoes nor hurricanes to be concerned with, at least in the immediate future. If you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the weather webpage of the station's website, which uh, image goes back three and a half days, you can have one last look at Ida spinning ashore down off the Gulf of Mexico and recurving northeastward across the Tennessee Valley and up the Appalachian Mountain chain. And while that extratropical circulation center is now buried under the clouds over the east coast, its rear side pressure gradient is helping to pull cool Canadian surface high pressure southward over the Midwest. Uh, that uh, surface high is showing up on the water vapor as a sort of yellowish region. The surface high is blocking Gulf of Mexico moisture from returning north into the Midwest. And that's one reason that the uh, weather won't be particularly active in the coming days. But lo and behold, out to the west, remnant moisture from what, uh, if you're looking at the water vapor, starts out at the beginning of the sequence there is Tropical Storm Nora in the Pacific. That moisture is riding north up the western mountains and high plains and up into the funnel zone of a big low pressure system that's wheeling eastward across the prairie provinces of Canada. That moisture, along with some remnant spin, will make a foray at us later tomorrow and Friday, even into Saturday. But between the recalcitrant uh, surface high pressure cellovers, which will only slowly move east, and the flagging moisture pool, which after all will have traveled all the way in here from the Pacific, actually the Gulf of California, we're not likely to see a whole lot of precipitation out of this over the coming days. I'm guessing we'll see a couple of rounds of uh, spotty light showers Friday into Saturday, but I think most of what falls on Friday will likely be absorbed by uh, dry air below cloud base. Most of the modeling carries this system past us by later Saturday, so I'm expecting skies to start clearing out or at least breaking by later in the day. Sunday then looks dry and uh, likely Monday as well, though we may see a secondary cold frontal boundary pass at that time. So a fairly innocuous period of weather coming up and one which will average around normal in terms of temperature, though it's a, it'll be a bit cool Friday and Saturday with the cloud cover over us. So uh, to the specifics, tonight skies will continue to remain clear with temperatures dropping to the low 50s with uh, dry air in place and only light northeasterly winds down around 5 miles per hour. Tomorrow will start clear and we'll see an equally rapid rise in the temperatures in the morning up to the oh, mid or even upper 70s by early afternoon. We may see a little bit of cumulus growth like we did today and those clouds will be joined by increasing patches of cirrus at first from mid to late morning onward. Those will thicken and fill in as we go through the afternoon. Winds will veer more easterly at uh, 4 to 7 miles per hour. Passing clouds overnight will hold the temperatures in the mid-50s on veering southeasterly winds. Friday should see increasing cumuliform or uh, stratocumulus clouds working overhead, possibly thickening enough for some spotty showers from time to time. I think those will be high base showers, and I'm expecting mostly just virga or fall streaks from those. Temperatures will be uh, restrained by the cloud cover, maybe just to the upper 60s on southeasterly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. We may see brief showery spells continuing in the overnight with temperatures holding in the upper 50s. 
Saturday, I'm expecting uh, the morning to continue in the occasionally wet vein with uh, frontal passage sometime midday and slow clearing thereafter. High temperatures will depend a little bit on just how thick and the cloud cover remains or how much it thins and breaks, but I'm guessing we'll be in the upper 60s to around 70. Light southerly winds will feature west or northwest in the afternoon or evening. I would expect substantial clearing of the system clouds overnight with low temperatures in the mid-50s. Possible morning uh, fog or low clouds on Sunday should lift and break for a generally sunny day with a high temperature in the low to mid-70s. It's currently 73 degrees at the airport in Madison. The dew point temperature is 48. The skies are now clear of cumulus that were up there. Winds are out of the northeast at 8 miles per hour. Barometers at 30.03 inches of mercury and fairly steady over the past few hours. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the 1960s. The IBEW, Plumbers Union Local 167, and the Teamsters Local 695 all go on strike within a few years of each other. Here's Stu Levitan with a special Labor Day edition of Madison in the 60s. All these They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s On strike, shut it down June 1st, 1961 The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers goes on strike Shutting down up to $20 million in construction for almost four weeks before UW Law Professor Nathan S. Feinsinger mediates a settlement which provides workers with what's described as a substantial wage increase. The following April, about 120 truck drivers in Teamsters Local 695 strike 15 ready-mix concrete and building supply firms. As picket lines go up at Findorf and other general contractors, $120 million in construction shuts down including for the Hilldale Shopping Center, the Van Vleck Mathematics Building, and in addition to Madison General Hospital. At Governor Gaylord Nelson's request, Feinsinger again mediates a settlement, ending the strike after 24 days. From a starting hourly wage of $2.65, the union sought a 66-cent increase over three years, and the employers offered 50 cents. The settlement is for 56 cents. In September 1965, local labor has lots to celebrate as it marks its day. Out of 113,000 job-seeking adults in Madison-Dane County, only 1,800 are out of work, an unemployment rate of 1.6%, far below the national rate of 4.4%. The largest workforce remains in government. It's still that low two years later, and still well below the state and national number. But now there's a new round of labor strife. 
Plumbers Union Local 167 isn't fooling around when it goes on strike on Saturday, April 1st. Because a strike by any one of the Building and Trades Council unions is honored by all the other trade unions, the plumbers know they're shutting down another $120 million in public construction projects in the city and 10-county area. On the morning of Monday, April 3rd, sheet metal workers, steam fitters, iron workers, bricklayers, and cement finishers also put their feet on the street and stay there for nine weeks. The strike takes its toll. The school board has to rent parochial school space for three months because the new John Muir School isn't ready. The Monona Causeway isn't open for the World Food Exposition at the fairgrounds. And major campus projects, including the massive Humanities Building and the neighboring Elvium Arts Center, are stalled. The strike succeeds. The unions get about everything they want, including elimination of the hated Industry Fund, which forced independent contractors to inflate their bids for kickbacks to the trade associations. In 1968, a city already stressed by war, protest, and racial strife suffers a summer of strikes by 1,500 industrial workers. On May 15th, the 315 members of the United Auto Workers Local 1329 and 23 members of Machinists Local 1406 with respective hourly wages of 225 and 290, strike Rayovac, the city's third largest employer. The strike lasts until late September, when new agreements provide for a 35-cent raise over three years, plus an increase in pensions. On July 1st, the 1,170 members of Steelworkers Local 1401, with an average hourly wage of 324, strike the Gisholt Machine Company, the city's second-largest private employer after Oscar Mayer. Their strike also ends in late September and brings the workers a 67-cent raise over three years, plus improved pension benefits. And a month later, labor unrest spreads to the protective services as Firefighters Local 311 engages in a mass sick-out. The firemen, whose base monthly pay of $620 is second lowest only to Green Bay among major Wisconsin cities, want the same $110 raise city police just got. The city bargaining committee, led by Alder Milo Flayton, offers $64. Negotiations deadlock in July and stay that way till October 24th when Union President Captain Edward Durkin and his men suspend all non-emergency work, including fire inspections. Three days later, the slowdown becomes a sick-in. Thirty firemen call in sick over the weekend, forcing Fire Chief Ralph McGraw to close three stations for seven hours and cancel all vacations. The next weekend, 38 firemen come down with the Flayton flu, and Durkin threatens an all-out strike if any fireman is disciplined for sick leave abuse. McGraw declares another state of emergency as staffing again dips below minimum level. On November 4th, Circuit Judge W.L. Jackman orders union members to end the sick-in and resume their non-emergency duties. McGraw and Durkin both say the situation is the city's fault. The city is pushing us toward illegal action, and it's going to be a bloody, violent fight all the way, the union president says. It's irresponsible of the city to push my men to the striking point, chimes in his chief. 
Durkin says union members are willing to break the law. Judge Jackman, quote, can put us in jail right now, he says. We intend to strike if we don't get our way. The third weekend, another 15 firemen claim illness. Mayor Otto Feske wants Jackman to cite the union for violating his order, but the judge calls the parties into his chambers and hammers out a deal. $70 a month, consideration of job reclassifications, and an increased pension. It's quickly ratified. Then other city workers who want another $50 a month also come down with the Flayton flu when exposed to the city's offer of $30 a month. On November 18th, more than two-thirds of Madison's 230 streets, sanitation, garbage, and engineering employees call in sick. Four days later, more than 400 city hall and school janitors follow suit. On November 26th, Feske orders that 73 firemen, along with other municipal employees, have their paid dock for improper sick leave. The next day, the day before Thanksgiving, Judge Richard Bardwell orders the city to pay firefighters their full wages unless it can show individual abuse. It never really tries. Bardwell does not provide the same relief for the other employees, who ultimately settle for a $40 monthly boost, double pay for holidays, and an increase in their pension. Alders Babe Rohr, Leo Cooper, and Paul Soglin try to reverse Fesky's order and reimburse the day's wage to the employees. The day after Christmas, the council rejects their proposal 13 to 6. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, labor-honoring, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. By the way, this show is mostly put together by volunteers, and we could use you on the show. If you want to be a reporter or on any other position on the news team, give us a call and volunteer. We provide all the training. Special thanks to feature contributors Abby Becker and Stu Levitan this evening. Jonah Chester produced the newscast. Ken Brady was our on-air engineer, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. <laughs>